The Time Out for Mental Health podcast is where we speak to sports figures about their experience with mental health issues related to depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug as detailed in my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Men in particular need support to ask for help when they feel off and don't know what's really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On the podcast, we want to uncover these issues so men can live a happy and healthy life, even if they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is Mark Patterson, one of the most successful people in the world today, and we're honored that Mark is sharing some of his time with us. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, considering everything, you know, going through this COVID-19, you know, situation around the world. It is a tough challenge. It's like every day we have to be ready to saddle up and, and go forward. Let me first frame our discussion, and then we can drill down into some specifics. Mark, you're an outstanding athlete, and you have been for most of your life. Started off in high school football. You're a superstar during high school and on to UW. And you were coached by one of the best there, Don James. And before going on to a career in the NFL, with the L.A. Raiders, the New Orleans Saints, and the Seattle Seahawks. You've also taken up mountain climbing at a very high level, no pun intended. Did you ever think you would be a mountain climber that hiked up the seven tallest mountains in the world? Uh, I never did, but, you know, I think there's there's a lot wrapped into one. So kind of that, that very generous description that you gave me, you know, you're really encapsulating 30, 35 years, you know, kind of the body of work, 40 years even. And, um, you know, in, in, in high school, and I want to lead up to this because it ties back, I think, to your book. I think the title is Swallowing the Gun or something. And it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really telling title. Um, and there have been times when, when I wouldn't say I've, I've been in that point, but uh, my worth in life and, and and so to kind of reset some of that um you know in high school um i could run around pretty much do whatever i wanted to do um football came very easy for me um but i loved it you know i was that gym rat that was out there all the time and i was very fortunate to get some attention from around the country i did choose the university of washington i was able to play with a, a coach that would later become a hall of fame coach don james the one thing that I, I didn't really understand, though, was the, the kind of work ethic that it takes um, uh, to do anything great. And what I essentially did is show up. So I remember that first day I got up there in, 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 in training camp and in August, and I was, I was six foot two, 181 pounds. I could not bench my weight. And I was looking at all these very intense players. They were 21, 22 years old, gunned up, confident. And I just said to myself, you know, I am not there. I'm not one of those guys. And so it was a really rough period of time for the, probably the first year. And I even came to the kind of a come to Jesus moment where I asked myself, you know, I either got to need to choose, choose door number one or door number two. 
And door number one is the easy path to quit. Or door number two is I can buckle up and I can get in the weight room and I can, I can start really deploying what Coach James was trying to teach us about the, the pyramid of success, the 25 different building blocks that any of us and any, anything that, that we do can lead to a championship, to lead to the pinnacle of whatever that chosen field is that you want to do. But I had to do the work. And the magical thing about that was that there was no certainty on the other end of it. So in other words, just because I went in the weight room and just because I ran the stadium stairs every night in the rain and I, and I worked on film study and everything else didn't mean I was one day going to play. But, but what I did is I put myself in the best position to do all those things. So now you fast forward the clock and some, some good things happen. I finally got my opportunity and I put myself in, the, in a great position. And when my moment came up, um, I pulled through. I caught a, a last-second touchdown in my first game against Michigan. We won the game and Sports Illustrated, all kinds of stuff. And it was really amazing. And so, you know, fast forward in the clock from there. Then I get drafted. I go down to L.A. Uh, with the Raiders. It was amazing. My, my career – you know, it was all over the board. I got cut. I was brought back. I was traded. I was all these things. But somehow or another, I squeezed out five years. And, and so then when I came to the end, there was kind of two defining points, actually three. The first one was making the decision uh, my first year in, in college that what I was going to do with my life. Was I going to quit or was I going to put it in the work and go forward? Number two was when I got done playing in the NFL – that, that literally going off the cliff for so many athletes, because now I'm 29 years old. I've been playing football since I was, you know, in fourth grade, and you're doing this one thing that you absolutely love. And in the NFL, I would have done it for free by having to get paid, which was nice. And now I have no direction. Now, the NFL has done a hell of a job to, to create something called the trust and really invest in a team of people back in New York trying to give – a roadmap to what to do life after football. So, so it's, it's a whole different animal today. But again, there was a tier gap where I was trying to say, who am I? And we can get back into that here in a little bit. And then kind of the last big point, which led into the mountains, your, your original questions that I ever <laughs> seen myself climbing mountains. The reason why I started climbing mountains is because of this awful time I was going through about 10 years ago where the gal that um, I was married to, I'd been with her for 23 years, 24 years, um, and, and married to her for 24 years, and with her for 30, no longer want to be married to me. And so with having kids and everything else, I just felt no value, and I was lost, and I was alone. And that's really that moment of truth where I had to like, what do I want my, my life to look like? So that's what ultimately got me in the mountains. Okay, good. Very good answer. Did let me ask you, let me go back a little and ask you about when you were in high school playing football, did you ever have that career vision of being an NFL player or did that not occur to you or did, was that something you focused on? I, I think there's the whole part of visualization and I could never see myself. I thought those guys were something like Superman. Like I could never see myself in that position. Right. But I remember growing up and in the backyard and playing every day with my childhood friend, Dean Baker, that we would throw the ball back and forth. We'd be pouring down rain. We'd be out there in T-shirts going up in Seattle. And we'd always emulate like we were, it sounds weird to say now, but OJ Simpson or, you know, the players back in those days from USC and Washington and, and other like I could see myself like that would that was my pinnacle of playing college football, um, but 
but I didn't really understand the path to get there. I just was kind of going about doing my thing. Right. And I just happened to be better than most of the kids that were out in the field. Okay, so now you're in the NFL, and you, you told us that you had some work to do around weight training and physicality to be at their level. Um, besides that, tell us a little bit about that experience and maybe some things that you liked or you didn't like during that time in the, in the league. Yeah, well, actually, it's my, my physicality had come. So that was really referring back to when I was in, in college, you know, going through there. And I, I just wasn't physically capable to take on those guys. And by the time I left the University of Washington, you know, I could bench a lot of weight. And I, I had learned and I had played against a lot of the top players against UC, USC, UCLA, Stanford, these other teams that had other NFL-type talent. And so I understood what it took at that point to go – and so, you know, there, there's, I think when you're playing sports, there's a physical element, there's a uh, mental element, and there's an emotional element. And really those th three things all really need to come together. Because you may have all the physical tools in the world. When there was a lot of guys that were more physically gifted than me, uh, more so in the NFL, um, but they were off doing drugs, right? <laughs> and and they, they weren't doing the things they had to take care of or – they were going through, there was an emotional level, you know, spirituality about them that they were just, so it gave me an edge of, of being there every day and just doing the right things that I, had, that I had to do. So tell me about, can you talk a little bit about the mental aspect of playing in the NFL and what that was like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's actually, it's, it's a really good question because, uh, you have to have a complete no fear attitude when you walk out on the field. And I'm going to throw this word around. Um, and I think the public, when I've seen the reactions, like, Oh my God, there was a fight. There were fights every day. And, and when, when I'm fighting for another guy's position and job, um, it, it's just the way it is. It's just part of the culture. And, and, and it's very violent. And if it's very easy to get intimidated and if you don't walk out and there's nothing like there's a single focus and it's the only focus in the world. It's like if I were going to go out and ride on the tour to France, I mean, nothing matters. Girlfriends, wives, kids, you know, all those, nothing mattered except for this one goal. And there was nothing that was going to stop me from achieving that goal. And I looked around the room. I remember when we all got in there, Raiders. And Tom Flores gets up in front. I'm looking around the room. There's Howie Long and Marcus Allen, Lyle Zato, Cliff Branch, uh, Jim Plunkett. I mean, the, the, the room was loaded with talent. And then we have all these free agents and all these rookies. And they go, hey, guys, I just want, you know, you know that, you know, we have a core team here. And you know, we drafted all these people. And just understand that at the end of the day, there's only going to be 55 of you as there's like 100 of us sitting in this room. And I looked around that room and I said, I don't know who you're talking about, but it's not me because I'm going to make, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm going to make this team. That's and you great. have to go in. Yeah. And you have to have that mentality or is it not going to happen? So was there ever a time where mentally and emotionally it, you were up against the wall and you were down in the dumps and, and you just felt terrible and you weren't sure you had a lot of doubt? 
the, my, my, my last year with the Seahawks, I was brought to, it was the first year of free agency and I had a great thing going down in New Orleans and, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty as they say. And, uh, Tom Flores, the, the old Raider, uh, head coach had become the president, uh, and general manager of the Seattle Seahawks. And so he did everything he could to bring me up there, threw a bunch of money at me and I took the bait and I went up there and it was just the wrong fit. And I went through this group, and, and there was a lot of alliances that I didn't fit in with um, that had been there before, which meant I would have taken their jobs. And it was just a bad fit. And I just I lost my spirit. And I knew that once I lost my spirit, because, again, you have to have that constant you know, competitiveness and drive and focus. And I knew that I lost that, and I knew I was done. I couldn't go. I mean, I was done, 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 done. I was 29 years old. And I decided to to hang it up. I had still skills to go play, but I'd lost the mental edge that was going to enable me to take on all those different players and come back again. I knew I was done, and, and I hung it up. During that time, had it ever gone through your mind that you were depressed or depression was was happening with you? I don't know if it was depression um i think though i mean that that i'm I'm not a i'm not clinically um schooled and you know exactly what the definition is of that but i knew that in terms of my career that i kind of jumped off one cliff and onto another and i didn't have a game plan of where that was going to take me and that was so frustrating and so hard because i'd always been successful and when you go from being in the limelight and having that kind of attention and making, you know, six figures and going from six figures to zero, um, you know, it, it's a hard, and, and in the NFL, you're not building a career necessarily. <laughs> you're, you're playing a career and then that thing that you love so much just ends. So it's coming to the reality of what were you going to do next? And, you know, I was, I was walking around, all my friends who had come out of college had been kind of working their way up the ladder of figuring out what they were going to do. And they were kind of in their thing. And I had to start back at the bottom, and that was very difficult. So when you're in that locker room, do you you see other players? Do you notice that other players are going through a negative time and feeling down and maybe a little bit depressed for a few months? Yeah, no. I mean, the the thing that's – it's an interesting question because I think it comes full circle back into – um, it's counterintuitive, isn't, at least from my perspective, as a professional athlete, because you have to be this gladiator, and you've got to be this macho dude. And, and when I was going through, you know, from, from uh, a little bit in high school, a lot of it in college, and then all of it in the NFL, you're walking around with a bunch of badasses, and you're all lifting weights, and you're all running, and you're all fighting your, your, your tail off, and it's about kill them and aggressiveness and all this other stuff. And then to turn around and then be really vulnerable about your feelings to people. It's just counterintuitive, I think, for a lot of people, especially back in my day. Now, things I'm sure have changed um, with with the kind of help that the NFL is giving uh, players now. There were no hotlines. There were nobody to really talk to. So everybody was always kind of walking around like, yeah, I'm a badass, you know, and nobody was crying on the field or nobody – it wasn't like that back then. So then you, there was nobody on the Raiders staff that, or Seahawks or Saints 
nobody that you could go to and talk about your situation. There was, there was no tools in the tool shed, yeah. bottom line. That's tough. That's tough. Yeah. Well, let's look at your nuclear family uh, while you were growing up as a kid. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Seattle, Washington. My mom and dad were married until my dad passed away about uh, five years ago. My mom, we call her Mary Poppins, and she's alive and well. She's 85 years old, and I have a sister as well. That's great. That's great. And how would you characterize your father as a man? Was was he tough on you? Did he did he ever get in your face? Did he show you love? Anything around emotions or feelings? What was uh, that like? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question because what I tried to do. I have two daughters now, one twenty one and one twenty three, and um, I really tried to break the pattern. My dad was a wonderful man, um, but he he grew up in an interesting time. Uh, his dad was an alcoholic. His dad had passed away when he was 16 years old. And so he had to kind of become the man of the family. He grew up in a small uh, fishing village in a small coastal um, port uh, outside of Seattle, a couple hours away from Seattle. And so we never hugged. Um, he never told me he loved me. Um, Every time I'd come, he, I, he was the happiest guy ever to see me. He supported me in every single way you could possibly imagine, but it was always with a handshake, you know, and that's what I got. And so the, the, for me, breaking the pattern was to make sure that I tell my girls I love them all the time and I give them hugs. So I, I had to break that cycle of life, and that's just the way, that's what he knew. And it was unfortunate because at the end of the day, I think it, it, it in part led to his stroke, to his mm -hmm. death. Um, and it's just he hadn't dealt with things. Did, did, did you ever experience uh, any abuse? Was he yelling at you or hitting you or any anything no, like that? No, not not at all, not at all. He he, like I said, he was the best dad ever. Now I'll tell you this: that was kind of odd. Is um, you know, I this is going back to high school and. And as you can imagine, the little league, you know, I'd go score three or four touchdowns in a game. And, you know, he would never acknowledge that. Um, mm -hmm. It was always like, hey, you know, you, you blocked really well in that game. <laughs> and, uh, and it was just a weird thing, you know. And, and I remember one thing that, that really hurt me is um, when, I, when I first got to Roosevelt High School, and that was my, you know, obviously my high school, and, and it's the big city school in Seattle. And um, when I was a freshman, when you walked into the men's locker room, which ultimately became where the football guys would put their football stuff and everything, and there was a little meeting room. And on that meeting room, there were um, most inspirational. And then there was these names. And I looked up on the names, and there was a bunch of guys who had gone on to the University of Washington. And in my eyes, they were famous guys. And I said, there was a secret to myself, but I said, someday my name is going to be on that wall. And um, my senior, well, both my junior year as a wide receiver, um, you know, as an All-American, I was All-State, I was Player of the Year, and then I switched to quarterback, and the exact same thing happened that, that, that next year. And at the banquet, um, when they came to, to, to give out, they gave me this award called Messias Locker, and they gave the most inspirational award to some other kid. I just couldn't figure it out. And about 10 years after the fact, um, my mother disclosed that my dad had gone to the head coach and they had told him not to give me that award because I was getting accolades from everybody else and somebody else was more deserving. 
and that probably crushed me more than anything. Oh, I can imagine. Not, right, because that was my personal goal. And my dad was trying to do the right thing, but the wrong result came out of it. Yeah, sure. Well, you said you have two children now, and so you're a parent. How do you characterize yourself as a parent? Well, I mean, look, I've, I've tried to be as involved as ever. You know, I coached the kids, you know, growing up. I try to do the best I can. I'm super involved. Uh, I, uh, I support them in every way. Uh, like I said, I've tried to break the patterns of, of, um, of connection um, by the physical part of, of hugging them and making sure they feel loved. Um, and then every night before I go to bed, I send both of them a text and say, I love you. Have a great night. I, when in the morning, you know, I wake up quick text. It takes me two seconds. Boom. Just acknowledge. Cause we're not obviously all in the house, you know, anymore. And, and the one thing, you know, it's been sad for me, but we used to all go on road trips together as a family. And then when my wife decided to check out on me, you know, it just breaks up a family and it sucks. And that's the thing that's been the hardest point um, of kind of, you know, like this new life going forward as a divorced single dad, you know, how that works. Now, my girls come out to some valley, Idaho, where I live now, and they visit me, and we do all kinds of fun stuff, and that's cool. But it's just, you know, the dynamic has changed a little bit. So can I drill down a little bit on that time post-NFL you come back home and here's your family and I've heard you on your podcast, uh, the Finding Your Summit podcast, you talk about your dark time. So can you, can you kind of tell me a little bit about that and, and what happened and how you handled that? Well, again, there was two dark, well, I've said three, but, you know, my, my second dark time, again, is this transition out of the NFL and into business. And, um, you know, it was just, I was in Los Angeles and then I got married, which probably wasn't a good decision at that time because I didn't have a career. I, you know, I'd saved all my money. So I was financially set there, but I wasn't emotionally, you know, in a good spot. And, and I think I just brought a lot of frustration to the marriage early on, um, and that was just, again, just a function of being a, 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 like a, a guy with a very focused goal to, know, to now being with no direction, right? And so um, it took me probably two years to dig my way out of it. And I spent a lot of time like spinning my wheels and trying to think. The one thing I learned out of it years later was that action creates reaction. And, and sitting around all day and thinking about different things and not doing anything about it doesn't get you anywhere. And at least if you go forward and do something, which I'd later figure out, you at least know if that was something you wanted to do or not to do, right? Um, but you could never make that evaluation if you didn't, like, jump into the fear and go figure it out. Um, I ultimately um, started a, a marketing company, and that kind of led me. It was a good path for me for, for a number of years. And that, that kind of support of the family, and I, I got my direction, I got my focus, my energy behind that. But and it was tough, tough couple of years. So during that time, uh, again, were, did you feel any depression? Were you into any risky behavior, anger, violence, substance abuse, anything like that? Yeah, you know, everybody's got their own um, their own um, outlet, and 
for me, I'm 58 years old now. And for me, it's, it's my, my drug of choice has been um, my athletics mm-hmm. and going out and run. And I've solved a lot of problems um, when I've gone on these long runs or these long climbs or hikes or mountain bike rides or something where I'm just in there and I'm processing through. And it doesn't work for everybody, but that has really served me well over time to really get the stress out and just to think about and about things and, and other things have come to me about ideas to go forward and in, in something, or maybe I'm frustrated. Um, but you know, I've never been a big drinker. I've never really done drugs. Uh, and I, I just choose to, um, approach life with a lot of positivity and, um, and that is, is helped. I probably got that from my mother, but that's helped me kind of weather some of these darker times, you know, when it looks like I've got nowhere to turn. During that time, did you uh, speak to any of your male friends about it or seek any professional help to, to just help you with your thought process? I don't think I was emotionally available in the right way coming out of the NFL. I just, I'd been used to being, again, this gladiator. And then all of a sudden, you know, I, 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 I've since learned, I didn't figure this out till I was 50, but I just thought that if I let my guard down, then people would look at me as a weak individual. And I couldn't have been more wrong in the way I approached that. And, and really, again, it didn't happen until I was 50, but, you know, the more I started expressing myself, actually the more power I felt from not only getting it out of my, uh, off, off my chest, but just saying, hey, I'm not perfect. These are what's going on. And actually figuring out that half the time, the more things I tell somebody, the more things they're telling me you know, about what's going on with their life and their, willing, their willingness to open up. And that's been kind of the, like the light gone off for me. Cool, cool. So you just said there that, that you, you were – knowledgeable and we're practicing what I call archaic masculinity norms that you didn't want to reveal any weakness. You didn't want anybody to feel like you were less than or not a man or something like that. I'm guilty as charged. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we all go through that until we get to some point of self-discovery. I know for me, it was uh, sobriety and, you know, that's when I started opening myself up to take a look at what was really going on because I was too busy working, making money, having fun. And I I just wasn't aware that I was practicing this masculinity that the media had taught me growing up for years, that it was all about being a man, toughen up you know, don't be a pansy, et cetera. And it's, it's tough to be vulnerable for a lot of men, but that is one of the keys to developing healthy relationships and being able to learn about life and, and learn about our next step that we really need to take. I think one of the, uh, the best things that ever happened to me even though it sucked at the time was um, getting divorced. Not that divorce is the answer, but I think that's what I had to do to go through all that pain to really start to open up about, you know, like who I was and what I was going through. 
um, to my friends. First time I'd really done that. They were shocked when I was telling them all this different stuff. Um, and, and, and so as a result of that, you know, all these amazing things have, have come from that. And, and so there's this kind of this chain reaction before, because I had to face, you know, face the fear or face my, my situation and the family was going to break up. And that was a big emotional swing for me. And like, how is that going to go forward? And what was that going to look like? And I was going through all those questions ultimately the mountain climbing which put for me be putting a gigantic goal out there um to try to become the first nfl player to ever climb the seven summits um changed my focus my energy about where i was thinking about about just about myself and poor me and everything else and started like okay now I have to you know to go to kilimanjaro what do you got to do and how are you going to get there and you know all this path i've been on and that ultimately led to starting a podcast i'm on i think 100 episode 162 now um and i've talked to all these amazing people that had these incredible things that have happened to them like you got to be kidding and the more i've talked to them it's really helped me just digest like maybe my situation wasn't as bad and dire as what i originally thought so that word perspective comes into it um and then you know getting to be on podcasts like this with you to learn your story and to engage with people that i would have never thought in a million years that i would even be talking to if my, I'm saying this in kind of a weird way, if my now ex-wife hadn't given me the gift of kicking me out <laughs> to go and do these other things. And so my career and public speaking, you know, these things that I would have never thought possible, I don't think it would have ever happened um, unless I'd gone through that transformation. Yeah, we all learn from our mistakes. I have a saying that mistakes are the seeds of greatness. And how do we know what to do unless we try? And sometimes we're going to succeed, sometimes not. And then we figure out, okay, that didn't work, so I'm going to take another path. So that's uh, that's actually brilliant what you just said. And I'm gonna, if you don't mind, I'm gonna steal it. But mistakes are the seeds to success. Yeah. And and I and I believe that, and I love what you said because you're right. And that self discovery. Um, and, you know, we were saying this kind of at the very beginning, but if you're not growing, you're dying. And so it's, it's just, it's made me look at like everything forward going into my life. And just like even with the seventh summit, you know, I'm now on my final, my final quest. I was supposed to be on Everest today, the top oh. of Everest today, um, as we're doing this podcast on May 21st, um, going for the top, but the whole world was shut down. Right. And so that didn't happen, but, um, next year I'll go back and hopefully knock on wood, I'll be able to accomplish that. But people have said, Mark, at the end of that, what are you going to do? Like, is it all over? I'm like, no, man, the game's just beginning. It's beginning because those, those seeds that you were just talking about teach me about this new path and there's a better way to actually live. Yeah. Something else that I, I go by is, um, uh, it doesn't matter what happens. Um, it's what, how we take it, what we learn from it. Because the key, like you mentioned earlier, is taking action. And, you know, my dad used to say, look, there's only two ways to go, the right way or the wrong way. And he was right. And if it, you take a step in the wrong direction, okay, then you got to, you know, re-strategize and figure out how you're going to get to this other direction and and get to the summit like you were talking about. But I think that for me, this is just one person's opinion, but the magic key that unlocked all that 
was my ability to finally figure out that the more that I could share and the more vulnerable I could be towards anybody who was willing to talk to me was really what set me free. And until I could take that gladiator armor and put it down, I wasn't going to be, you know, half the person that, you know, I want to be and I think I can become. What I've learned in doing my research for this book and others is that it actually takes more courage to ask for help than hide, hide underneath the covers and sweep everything under the rug. For sure. Because you develop, you know, a little more context as a man and realize that it's not just about strength and power. And, you know, having a, a, a difficult discussion with a family member or your daughters and knowing that it's going to be hard, but it's essential that that's an important part of being a man as well. Being able to, to do the things that are tough, but you take it on anyway and you don't, uh, you know, hide in the closet about it. You, you deal with it and everybody walks away as better people. So, uh, how, so how would you define healthy masculinity now that you've gone through uh, all of these experiences that you've had? Um, well, I, you know, look, I, I, I think that at the end of the day, my, my life is way richer today than it's ever been probably in the last, you know, five to eight years than it's ever been, you know, in, in, in my, my past, if you take eight years, my past 50 years, right? And I think that has just come to grips with being real and um, ensuring my true feelings, <clears throat> being as authentic as I possibly can, uh, keeping that positivity, um, keeping big goals that are out there. Um, and, and again, I think in, in one sense for me, everybody's got a different way of dealing with things, but I am totally a hundred percent, um, tenacious about my workouts. I have to be, you know, you're going to go climb Mount Everest. I climb, I do CrossFit in the morning. I go climb a mountain every night. Right. And that's just what I have to do to get there. And again, that helps me relieve a lot of stress. But the other component we, we just talked about was uh, being consistent with uh, my podcast because most of those 162 questions or podcasts that I've done are dealing with people that have no arms, no legs, or blind, you know, were burned in a car crash. I mean, just horrific types of things. And it's, it's, it's really helped me understand the word compassion about my you know, fellow mankind. And it's just, I think it's just made me a better person overall because I'm constantly having these con- conversations versus saying, hey, I'm good. And then, you know, going off. And, it, it, and you, you, you know, I know you're kind of in the early stages of podcasting, but podcasting, it's hard because of scheduling and people canceling and, and finding new guests and all that kind of stuff. But, but I've, I've stayed disciplined to it and committed to it. And that like anything you do, um, it's been more about the mental health. It really, it's been, it's, it's, it's been more my reward than probably their reward for being on the podcast is because of what I've been able to learn. So uh, regarding the podcast, how, how do you characterize it? What's your context uh, surrounding your podcast and how you take it on? Well, you know, it's interesting because when I, when I, when in the kind of the early days, I was trying to figure out, you know, somebody interviewed me like this and as, 
as uh, I was doing the interview with Yogi Roth. He's a Pac-12 announcer on the, uh, on the Pac-12 network. And as he was talking to me, I was having this little, this little person inside my head saying, you know what, I think I can do this. I know a lot of people. And, and so ultimately I did. And as I was figuring out what the name was um, and what I had just gone through, and because I'd put this big goal out there, it just kind of seemed kind of finding your summit seemed like a good. So the tagline is finding your summit, all about people overcoming adversity and finding their way. And it's really my personal journey, but it's really become much more metaphorical over time because it's not just one summit. It's everybody's going after multiple summits. You've got your own thing that you're doing, you know, writing books and overcoming your, you know, whatever your, your personal demons are. We all have them, which I've learned. And it, it's been, that's been my journey. And so it's been fascinating to phrase it up that way and then learn about all these other stories that are out there that need to be told. So you also do some public speaking. So yeah. do you approach that in the same realm as you do your podcast? Yeah, I think it's really important that, uh, you know, I, when, I, when I step out there, um, I know that my, like, if you just look at the bullet points and it says former NFL player, and it says uh, Sports Illustrated. It says Seven Summit, you know, guy that's going after all that. And I think it's really important that I have the same problems as everybody else. I'm not special at all. Um, I'm not unique. Uh, and, 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 and so it's, it's me trying to bridge that, that connection between I'm just like you. And, 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 and that helps to tell my story about – I've got two kids. I've had a dog, you know, I've been divorced and half the room, you know, has, has had the same situation of them. That's not unique, right? It's how you deal with these things. And then really having um, a set of strategies um, to go forward to merge yourself up. And all I can tell you is what's worked for me. And, and, and what's worked for me is just, you know, this, this something I learned from my head coach, Don James, the pyramid of success. I've kind of, broken that down and created my own summits acronym model. And it's just like, you know, you want to get out of it. This is what helped me emerge from my tough times and has gotten me to these, these different places, but there was definitely a roadmap and I was lost and I was confused. And I was all those things that everybody else at some point in time, their life goes through. Um, but it is a roadmap and it has worked successfully time over time for a lot of people. And so here's how it's worked. And I throw out some examples from my mountain climbing, from Sports Illustrated, and from my NFL football days. Do you feel uh, inside, do you feel a responsibility to help your fellow man? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting when you, you, when you say that. And, and um, my daughter is epilepsy. Oh. And um, this has been a long journey. And so um, – you know, in the past, I've, I've helped to raise money um, for uh, this group called Water Boys. And what we were doing is raising a bunch of money. Um, and Chris Long, son of Howie, who played for the Eagles and the Patriots, um, started this organization. It was all about um, building water wells in Tanzania to help the people of the Maasai tribe because they didn't have any water and all these bad things happened to them when they're trying to go out and, you know, get water or these streams and everything else. And so a year ago, my daughter was mission critical. She was at the University of Arizona. And so I said, you know, why am I doing this? It's a great organization, but I need to be helping my daughter in a much bigger way. 
And so I rolled up my sleeves and I called the National Epilepsy Foundation. I partnered with them and um, we created a foundation called Amelia's Everest. And so um, essentially it's just, you know, trying to raise, well, we raised it, $29,029. We raised almost $30,000 in an event that we had uh, January 2nd or 3rd. And now I'm partnering with another organization called Higher Ground and we're going to raise a bunch more money. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's been great because my daughter, she just, her seizures are down, way down. We started a new drug because we had this event which created awareness. Um, she just got a 3.5. After last year, this exact same time, we had to do a medical withdrawal for her. So that's where my focus is, is helping my kids. And if I can be of inspiration and, and help anybody else along the way, then, hey, I'm there for you. I want to do that. But they start immediately with trying to help my own daughter. That's great. Uh, well, get you out on this. You've had an amazing life so far, Mark. How, how do you top what you've achieved in the last 58 years? I, see, I, I just don't, I don't see it that way. And again, that's really when you talked about, you know, the, um, when I go out in public speak, I don't, I don't want people to walk away with that. I want to look at, I still see myself as I'm still in the first inning. And I feel, I, I look at, you know, I've done a couple uh, cool things. We've talked about those, but think of all the things that I have not done. Um, you know, climb the highest peaks in every state. I happen to have done four and uh, four of the hardest ones, but what a great road trip to go to Colorado and Utah and Montana and go on the East Coast, right down through the South get in a sprinter van or something and go, go climb each, each, the highest mountain. I mean, it can go on and on and on. There was some um, show that came on the other night um, that is some northern island above Greenland or something that I've never heard of. Like, how cool would that be to go there and look for walruses or something? You know, so there's just a million and one different things that I think as we go and I keep, I keep emerging myself in these different activities, um, you know, things come back at me and that's the whole key is keep pushing, keep pushing. I don't think that I'm 58 now and in a couple of years at 65, I retire. I'm just not I'm on that train. I'll, I'll keep pushing and driving and trying to raise money and helping people till, you know, I fall over. I'm with you. As you can see, Mark's story is quite awesome. Mark's a man of courage, bravery, and honor. True role model for our world today. We are honored to have you on our podcast today. Do you have any final thoughts, Mark? My only final thought is the same thing I say to my kids all the time, which is it takes a little more to champion. And, you know, it does. And if you want to do anything great and phenomenal in your life and live in that zone, you got to go the extra mile. And to me, you know, being average is easy. Being great is hard. And, um, you know, that's, that's the motto I go by and I live by every day and I try to, I continue trying to push and push and push. And that's the way you achieve things. Awesome. Don't, don't hate me guys. And I'm going to edit this, but um, if you could repeat that whole last bit, <laughs> you went out Mark for just a, you muffled a little bit. Sure. Is that okay? I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah. What was the question, Tim? Um, last anything? I was else? just asking, uh, I said we were honored to have you on our podcast today, Mark. Do you have any final thoughts? Yes. The final thought is it takes a little more to make a champion. I say this every day to my kids. I live it myself, and I think it's very easy to be average, and it's really hard to be great, and that's how you get there. Make the extra effort. 
great. I look forward to continuing our dialogue, Mark, moving forward so I can learn from you so I can help others. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you. Listeners, please look out for the Time Out for Mental Health podcast where you get your podcasts and keep your eyes out for my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide.